So we're going to do a video today on work-life balance, which you can see with a kid home from school was pink eye. I got terrible pink eye today, too. That's the one thing they don't tell you about being a parent. You're going to be sick 24-7, right, Octavian? I actually started a spreadsheet to track the number of days that all of us are sick. So every time someone gets sick, I track the dates because I want to see ultimately like how many days out of the year someone in our family is sick because I legit think that it's like quite a few days. I think it's about a quarter. A quarter? Yeah, I'd say it's about a quarter of the year. Yeah, it might even be more than that. It might actually be more like a third. So we can report back on that one. But despite being sick, I would argue that we still really have a lot of fun. And that I expected that as a parent, we would be a lot more stressed out and unhappy. Because everyone talks about how like merge is hard work and having kids is hard work. But in the end, I think that it's actually pretty fun and seamless. But I think that a lot of that has to do with framing. So something that we do a lot with our kids when we need them to be excited about something is we play a hype game, essentially, where we will take something really mundane, like an airport shuttle bus, and we will frame it as the most fun, the most amazing thing in the world. So let's say that we need to get through a really rough travel day with lots of transfers, we will hype up the airport shuttle at the end of that day um, to get to a parking lot. Like it is the coolest thing in the entire world. And it works like crazy. Like we, we talk about it all day. Oh my gosh, we get to do this thing. And when we actually get to the airport shuttle bus, we're like, this is the best thing ever. And I think that one of the tricks to making a really heavy work schedule work with family, with a spouse, with whatever, is playing the hype game with everything. So no matter yep. what you're doing, you make it fun. You make it well, funny. I think it's important it... to remember how much society plays the hype game with you oh. and how much you're already doing this to yourself, whether you realize it or not. Would you like to know more? So think about like a marriage, right? People are like, the day I was married to you was the happiest day of my life. Huh. And it's like, why? Like, you knew you were going to get married well before that day. That's not like you just found out you were going to get married that day. It, it, it's a ceremony. They're not very fun ceremonies. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty stressful day. <laughs> yeah, you, you're sitting there. You're likely last minute making sure you've memorized your vows so you say them right. You're trying to project a certain self-image to the crowd. Or you're just trying to keep all your guests happy and deal with all the logistical nightmares that are coming up with whatever catering, people needing stuff, oh. etc. I mean, I think this is true of beaches, for example, right? Oh God, like, miserable. Oh, people go to a beach. It's hot. They're drinking alcoholic beverages in the hot sun, often reading a book that they could be reading at home or laying down, burning themselves and giving themselves cancer. I don't know what, I don't know why people still do that. That seems like it's, it's not even like a trend anymore. But the, the question is why? What are you getting out of doing that differentially, right? It's that society has told you that this is a fun thing to do. And that is where you are getting happiness from the event. And you can change what is a fun thing to do if you create new narratives for yourself. So mm -hmm. we can say, some people are like, oh, that's really sad that you turn your business trips into little mini honeymoons or family vacations or whatever, right? For you and your spouse, because you work together. And it's like, why? We, we section life into fun and not fun time, but you can make all of life 
fun time. If you create the right story for yourself around what you're doing and the people around you are helping you continue to generate this delusion. And you might be like, that's not real fun. That's a delusion. Everything, this whole game, this whole life you're living, the emotions you feel, they're delusion generated by the narratives society has created for you or the pre-evolved emotional responses that you have because your ancestors who had those responses had more surviving offering. And I think a really influential moment for you in your life around this hype machine game was from watching an Adams Family movie where- Well, we talk about that in another video, so I don't want to go too deep on this Yeah, concept. but there's a, a scene in which Morticia is cutting the tops, the, the bl bl blossoms off of roses and admiring this bouquet of thorny branches, essentially. And it just, it's this perfect moment encapsulating how it is up to you in your mind to decide whether something is positive or negative, whether you enjoy it or not. And you can choose to do that with everything. And honestly, we're not as good as it is. Uh, we're not as good at it as we should be. Like I should be more like recently, for example, our son Octavian is in with pink eye. Malcolm got pink eye. I should have been like, oh, this is a great opportunity for us to spend more time together and have a special day with Octavian and instead of like, oh no, like how are we going to handle the logistics, the calls? Oh, how do we do this? How do we keep Octavian happy? And I think that really, what was a missed opportunity every time also is if you were in a, a working relationship where you fail, to spend time together and turn it into something really special and fun and enjoyable. That's a failure on your part. But I think many marriages also fall apart for that same reason that when stuff happens, it doesn't matter if it's good or if it's bad, the couple or one partner chooses to view it negatively. And that can honestly happen with really good things. Like maybe yeah. a spouse gets an amazing job opportunity and they get to move into a much better house in an amazing city. But that spouse is like, oh, I don't want to leave home. This is horrible. You're or you've created this power imbalance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I absolutely agree that within every moment, and this also really colors how we see emotions. Why we see indulging in positive emotions is, is really negative, but we also really culturally shame was in our family, the idea of indulging in negative emotions. Mm -hmm. Because if I come to Simone one day and I'm in a bad mood, I'm hurting her. I am hurting our kids. I am hurting everyone I interact with that day. And at the end of the day, a bad mood is often a choice. Yeah. Unless you're like have major depressive disorder or something like that. And then there's pharmacological solutions. There, there might be pharmacological solutions, but generally if we're talking about like just general bad moods, most of them are a choice and there's something that we can change due to how we believe that we are interacting with reality, that the framings that we have of the world. And that is, is why I think even though our wider philosophy says emotions don't matter, in part because emotions don't matter and because a bad mood makes everyone less efficient, there is never an excuse to be in a bad mood. And this is a really interesting thing with cultural groups that do believe emotions don't matter because this is something throughout them. For example, you've got the Opus Dei. What I, the Opus Dei is a Catholic sect. The evoke set that a lot of people have about them is, oh, they're the ones who whip themselves, right? <laughs> Famously a character from the Da Vinci Code with an Opus Dei member, like one of yeah. the bad guys. And so people see this as gruesome or something. But the reality is that it is a mandate for every Opus Dei member. The reason they whip themselves, the reason they flagellate themselves is to learn better emotional control. The reason they have that mandate is because they have a mandate in 
all of their interpersonal interactions with other people to be happy and be cheery. Mm -hmm. That's another thing about the Opus Day that a lot of people don't know. Generally, cultural groups that see emotional control as a mandate see it as part of that mandate to always try to be as chipper as possible, which creates a lot of people are like, yeah, but if you don't indulge in your negative emotions and they'll come out in other weird ways. And it's like, no, they don't. So the study will always cite, and I'll cite this till it's a blue moon because people need this beaten into them. Is that when you do something, like if you're mad and then afterwards you go punch a bag, it has been shown that that will make you more mad and you will get more mad in the future. Indulging in a negative emotion makes that negative emotion worse always. And it makes it easier to feel that negative emotion in the future. If you, however, just choose not to view things negatively and you experience very little negative emotions, it's like not having that first vomit. You will be less likely to throw up afterwards. Don't break the seal. Um, <laughs> don't so break I, the seal. Don't break the seal. Hold in all the, those positive emotions. Because I think in our daily life, do we experience that many negative emotions? I don't really see you. No, actually... I started using a mood tracking app called Dalio just to see how my moods are. No, actually, even when we're stressed out about stuff, like we, we, we do all right. We're pretty even keeled, like you would expect for our value set, which is pretty encouraging. But I also think that we are actually a lot more happy-go-lucky than people would expect per our value set. But again, I also think here's another thing that we do that I think really makes a big difference in, in our perceived happiness and, and our experience in life and also our stress levels, quite frankly, is we will do stuff that is actively uncomfortable or act a certain way while doing something. Even when we are uncomfortable, we will act really happy and then take a bunch of photos of it and record everything as happy. And then when we are we have like little playback albums of recent photos, like throughout our house or on our phones and stuff. And when we look at those, our memories end up being of, oh, that was so happy. We're such happy people. Well, this is like the day on a beach phenomenon, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, yeah, I might be miserable all day in the hot sun on a beach, but I'm gonna take a number of pictures of me smiling. And then that helps record it in my narrative, like my internal history that I enjoyed that day and I will believe I was happier. And this can actually have a really positive effect on relationships with your spouse, your kids. Yeah. Are you showing them the picture you made? Wow, buddy. What is it of? Um, it's half color, Sandy. Oh yeah, it's yes. color colors. Show it again. Because when you believe that your partner is somebody who makes your mood better, you will like being, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, let me get it to you. One paper, please. Here you go. Thank you, buddy. You are a nice boy, my friend. You are a nice boy. You are a nice boy. And I think, so there's two things to this. One is like that interaction. People have been asked like, why are your kids always happy and polite? And I think it's because they just don't have a lot of modeling of other ways to emotionally react to people. And I think that's really important in terms of what you teach kids. The emotions and the ways that you treat the people around you is the way that they are going to learn to treat the people around them. Mm -hmm. But to the other point I was saying, the reason you create these false narratives, even if we had a bad day at the airport or something like that, we got stuck at the airport all day. And so it's okay, rounding the kids, very stressful. We could miss our flight. Are we going to get one? But let's do some video of us having fun, right? 
Because when I believe that my partner makes my life better, that's going to make my relationship more stable. And I will show her more regular gratitude throughout the day, which makes her feel better and creates a positive feedback loop. The moment one partner begins to believe that a relationship is, is a negative thing for them, it's really quick to get in a negative feedback loop where they're not treating the partner the way the partner wants to be treated and the partner doesn't treat them the way they want to be treated. And it is just so hard to break out of that cycle. Alternatively, you can have sort of a cycle of positivity that is remarkably easy to create. Mm -hmm. Now, a few side notes here, okay? One is work cheating. So it's important to remember that everybody has a happiness set point. Yeah. And what that means, and there's been studies on this, if you win the lottery or if you get a major injury and become an amputee, yes, your happiness will go down for a short period, but largely it almost always goes back to about where it is. Everyone has about the same level of average happiness. And I think I just have a really high happiness step point. And yeah. that could also explain why my kids are so chipper. It could be that we are just have a genetically high happiness set point. Most people in my family are really happy people and we pass this on to our kids. And so they're just cursed with happiness all the time. What are your thoughts on that, Simone? I would say we've definitely seen in our kids that they have different happiness set points. Some are happier than others, but the, the, yeah, definitely modeling how you react. I would also say that you, the way that you personally choose to react to things 100% feeds off the other person. So when one of us accidentally gets into a bad mood, like we miss a night of sleep or one of us is in a lot of pain for some reason, and then that leads to us being like not reacting to something in a positive way, it definitely gets the other person in a negative mood. So I do yeah. think that there are both virtuous and vicious cycles that are created. I think also cosplaying wholesomeness as a family, it does make sense to expend some time on that, even yeah. when it's not of immediate utility. This season, we've got fireflies out in the field that we stay up later than we otherwise would to sometimes go out, catch fireflies together with the kids or go berry picking. There's yeah. lots of raspberries and wineberries out this season. And we're doing that and we're expending the time doing that, even though it's not efficacious in the moment, because it helps create this narrative for ourselves which makes us, I think, appreciate our relationship and our family more. Mm -hmm. And it creates a narrative that I think our kids will also remember growing up that I had a picture of an ideal childhood. I also wanna add a refining point here and an important one because what we're describing here obviously is acting. You, you should dress for the job you want. Like we act for the life experience we want. But I think when a lot of people hear that, they hear, okay, so I'm just going to pretend it. And there's that implies that there's also a period where you start acting like yourself. And I think a really core rule here is no, you never act like yourself. There's the stereotype of there's this celebrity couple and they act like everything's perfect. And then the moment the cameras stop rolling, the moment the photographer steps away, they're immediately snapping at each other. Like the moment the guests leave, they're fighting, they're yelling at their kids. This is shown all over the place in media. Maybe it happens sometimes in reality, but for us, if we are alone, like I'm alone. Let's see, there was this other night, like two nights ago, there was this night where I was cleaning up after the kids and I was wearing our infant on my back and she just vomited like it just fell five gallons of milk down my back at the same time that our younger toddler decided it would be really fun to spill his milk all over the floor and at the same time that Octavian thought it would be really fun to, to throw food all over the place and I'm just like 
just like I'm, I'm feeling the warm goop like roll down my like pants. Like okay. this is a bad moment. But no, I'm I'm like still acting chipper in the moment. Malcolm, you weren't there. I was performing for absolutely nobody. I was acting cheerful. But like, there's very, no time where you're off. Period. It's very important to note that there have been studies on this. If you smile, you will report feeling happier. If you even just say words that cause you to smile more. Oh, uh, I, I actually think the pencil study, and this is one in which they had people put like a pencil like oh, yeah, in their yeah. mouth. I think that wasn't replicated. We'll see that there are caveats, but I think that there, there are, are lots caveats, of studies. That- but I think the preponderance of evidence in the research says that acting as if you are happy or acting as if you are having a wholesome moment with your family will make you feel a wholesome moment with your family. Yeah. Even if you have an inclination not to feel, and of course, conversely, indulging in anger, indulging in sadness is going to make it worse, which is, of course, why we think it's so toxic and why we have other episodes talking about how modern therapy is a cult, all these narratives. also something we do with our kids. I'd be very careful not to tell my kids they're sad people or that Mm -hmm. they're, tell your kids you're a happy person, you're a good boy, right? Because they will internalize that and act like that. But adults do the same thing. We build these narratives about who we are and then that determines how we act to the people around us. Okay, so side note on all of this that we find very perplexing and I'd love it if our audience could help us think through because it's always been one of the big mysteries to me. And every now and then I'll have a little breakthrough on it. It's nightclubs, okay? I went to nightclubs a few times as a kid and then I went back recently. I was on this trip to Latin America with a bunch of Teal fellas And I was like, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to observe this. Maybe I'll find some fun at it that I didn't see before. It was hellish. Nothing about this experience to me evokes any sort of positive emotional state. You may be able to find a a partner at it. Maybe like some sort of romantic partner. But there's got to be more efficient ways with less cost. You're there late at night. You are sweaty. Everything is overpriced. So every moment I feel like I'm being scammed and I'm just annoyed. People are like spilling drinks on you. The music is loud. It's actively painful. (laughs) I guess it could be some sort of group bonding ritual that's meant to create some sort of hormonal thing in someone's head, like almost inducing the effects of a drug or like a mini to mini bonding ritual. But then why are you doing that with people you don't know? Are you? Are you just trying to languish in like a certain emotional subset? I I guess I don't understand it. Maybe these people have some narrative around nightclubs making them happy that I don't have. And so they're building memories that nightclubs are making them happy. Or maybe they're really gaining something from the experience. What are your thoughts, Simone? My thoughts are that for some types of people, there's some kind of religious or like mind altering experience of, of <coughs> dancing at a really lar- like loud environment with a lot of people like moving in unison and like just the intense overstimulation of that. And then the group cohesion of the moment probably creates some kind of mind altering state that is intoxicating for some types of people. So you think it's like an intoxicant that we don't feel for whatever. Exactly. Yeah. It's like some drug that we somehow <laughs> can't process. Like we don't have receptors for it. So everyone else is like dosing on it and they're like, ah, and we just can't, we don't get it. Could be. I think, so if we're addressing the subject of our work-life balance and how we handle it, I think we also have to address the constant question that we get from people or like statement, which is, Oh, I could never imagine working with my spouse. Oh, yeah. That's a weird thing. It just seems like from our life, just so weird to say, why would you marry someone if you don't want to be around them all the time? Yeah, that and there's this assumption that what about when you have a disagreement that like you will not be 
able to work together if you disagree on something. And I, I think that's to us when we hear that from someone that basically says to us, you really shouldn't be married because if you do not have shared values and a shared vision that you have aligned around, that means that you are not sustainable. Like you are not stable. That means that you're both just in it for yourselves and leaning out of the relationship. Typically, if an aligned couple has a conflict, the conflict is in that each of you have a different hypothesis around how to best maximize what matters to you collectively as a family. Malka might think that it would be better for everyone to buy uniforms for some project. And I might think it's better that no one has uniforms because I think that will make them more efficient and whatever, and it costs less. And so it, we both want the same thing, which is for that project to succeed or something. We just have very different ideas on, on, on how it is best executed. And there are ways around that, right? One can run tests, one can try one method, one can do all sorts of things to figure out where the truth may be. Whereas I think for many other relationships, there's this expectation that there will well, be compromise. An... Compromise is the most toxic thing you can have in a relationship. Yeah, what you're looking sure. for is the correct answer, not the answer that's in between the two people. But I think a lot of people are purely motivated either by hedonism or by satisfying some sort of self-narrative. Mm. And both of those things you can have differentiations between the couple where there is like systemic differences that can't be resolved. If you're both optimizing for your own hedonism, then yeah, there is potential systemic disagreement. Whereas if you're optimizing for specific outcomes for the world, it's very rare that we have any sort of sustained disagreement. What are our sustained disagreements right now, Simone? I'm trying to think. One of them actually like over time for a long time has been on like whether or not we would support our kids taking something like Adderall. Um, oh yeah, for, I'm for very supportive of it and she's very against it. That is so However, I decided to research the subject more, right? Because what mm -hmm. we want is the best outcome for our kids. So it's not like I'm anti-drug and he's pro-drug. It's that I was concerned that if our kids take drugs like Adderall to do well on tests, to do tasks that are really hard to focus on, that as adults, they will not feel empowered to focus on things independently. And Malcolm's saying, listen, Sometimes you just have to take these things to be able to get through it because if you don't, like, you just won't. Like, like you, you won't succeed. And I, I think she has an enormous, almost superhuman ability to focus on things. Yeah. I'm, I'm like someone who doesn't need it, who's, I'm, or I'm like a wealthy person being like, why can't you just buy your way out of the problem? Yeah. Which is, is silly. So, what I ended up doing, and this, I guess, is probably a pretty good illustration of how an aligned couple will disagree on something, is I went out and I looked for more information on, okay, actually, what are the long term effects of drugs like Adderall? And I now have a more nuanced understanding from the research of when it's actually appropriate. So it looks like for people who are diagnosed with ADHD, like they are shown to have significant attention problems, that taking Adderall or drugs like basically focus medications, whatever like the best like time released one is these days, it's like least addictive or habit forming, taking one of those actually helps to build the sort of connective pathway in your brain that would enable you to learn how to focus without that medication as an adult. And, and you see, this goes to everything we've been saying in this. Mm -hmm. When you act out any emotion or any behavior pattern, it becomes easier to access in the future, even if the way you're acting it out is pharmacologically assisted. Yeah, and so I'm, I, I was hearing that and I was like, at first I was like, wait, what, really? But then also I've done a lot of research on psychedelics, for example. And it also seems to be found that if you've done a lot of psychedelics, you can reach similar states 
after taking them just from meditation alone, because essentially your brain has walked that path. It's like taking a machete and cut a more easily walkable trail. So you can get there without the assistance in the future. So now my view is very different. I think what my stance is on our disagreement now (laughs) is if our children, if we have children who are diagnosed with ADHD, and I'm pretty sure we will, that yes, indeed, we should give them those medications for use in very specific applications when they really need it to do rigorous tests and stuff, but we should not give it to any child we have who is not diagnosed with it because it could create this feeling of dependency. Like I can't focus without it. Does that make sense? We'll see. I mean, our general takes on our bodies. One of our recent tweets is saying, thank God our bodies are disposable. That's what it is to be a pronatalist is to fundamentally believe that my body's disposable. My kids are the next better iteration of me. Their kids will be the next better iteration of them. And so I think it makes us a little loosier, goosier with performance improving medications than other people who are like, my body's a temple might be. Burn, the Blade Runner quote, the flame that burns twice as bright burns (laughs) half as long. For them, I would say just do whatever increases your efficiency. Yeah, but Malcolm, don't forget for a hot second that we're also incredibly frugal people and that these medications cost a lot of money and dependencies cost a lot of money. Our kids are going to have to find a way to pay for it if they want it as a sustainable. I know, but I'm just saying a life in which you don't need to pay for something is going to be easier than a life in which you feel like you do. And then more things you feel like you have to pay for. Okay, consider the fact that neither you nor I is addicted to caffeine. Think about the thousands of dollars we've How saved. How many sodas do you think I drink a day? Okay, I'm not addicted to caffeine. How many thousands of dollars? <laughs> <laughs> I no, genuinely, I must drink 20 a day? Okay, fine. The you are people, addicted to caffeine. You know they see me drinking these on camera. But also, no, I know how much you spend on uh, Coke Zero, and it's a lot. It's a lot of money. So I'm just saying, like, the less you have of that in your life, the better. So we have to balance our collective values, frugality, but also performance. And yeah, we don't really care. Bodies are disposable, burn bright, die young, whatever. Uh, have kids first, whatever, raise them successfully. But yeah, that is how we navigate agreements, right? Like our discussions aren't like, oh, you're hurting my, you never listen to me. I just don't think this is right. Actually, this is another point, the burn bright, die young part of our our, our worldview yeah. uh, that perhaps makes it very easy for us to be pretty happy most of the time is that we really genuinely are not worried about death. I, I am worried about dying before I'm able to put my kids in a good position in life. 100%. I'm, 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 but I'm not worried about death more generally. And I feel like people who have this attachment to their immortality, they probably feel more like a dagger dangling above them by a thread their entire life, right? I can understand why it would create this sort of fear of, I don't know, the other? I wonder. I mean, it's I don't a know. threat. You can die at any moment, right? I guess it's something that's hard for me to model because I'm not really afraid of dying. I'm not really, I'm afraid of my kids dying, but I guess that's not like an ever present fear for me because we're going to have a lot of kids. If I had two kids, I'd be really afraid of them dying. But I'm terrified of anything bad happening to anyone who I love or honestly anyone. I don't want bad things to happen to anyone, but no. Yeah. Maybe our mortality, maybe actually the fact that we fully embrace our mortality encourages us to enjoy the moment that we have at any point. But I I think that's more like hippy dippy nonsense. And then we just understand that because we want to maximize our objective functions, we perform better when we're not depressed and demotivated. And so we know that we have to find some way to, max out our feelings of happiness 
both individually, but especially as a couple. But it's so we, weird to me that you wouldn't think that should be pharmacologically assisted. Then why aren't you constantly on something? Like, because I don't need to be. But <laughs> when I was younger, I had a harder time focusing and I needed to be then. I think you actually have ADHD. Like, well, I think you actually, actually need it. This is an important thing to know is the relationships you have can make things much easier for you. So That's when I say true. when I was younger, I had a hard time focusing. One of the things where my brothers, this is the best sign of your guys' relationship. Before I met Simone, I had a problem with grinding my teeth in my sleep and I had to wear a, a night guard. And I think it was due to just like constant stress of, of looking for a wife, not having met that stage yet, but also just in general with my day-to-day -day life because I started grinding my teeth in early high school, right? And that's when I really started trying to put my nose to the grindstone and sure I got into a top tier college and sure I got into a top tier graduate school, start my career well. So I was really on full blast after that point in my life. And after I started dating Simone, within the first year of dating you, I, it used to be if I didn't wear my night guard for a night, my, my teeth would start cracking. And you can even see some lines. Yeah, I did real damage. I, I broke off parts of my teeth that have now been... Don't do this to me. No. But now, not once since we've been in a relationship have I ground my teeth. And maybe it's just I so feel like I someone has my back that I'm dealing with incredibly low levels of stress in my daily life, which makes things much easier. And it's created the illusion for you that I have always been this emotionally calm when it's really more something that has been created because I have so little fear of any sort of betrayal from you or any sort of, it, 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 even things could hit me in the back because I've got another pair of eyes looking for me. I would imagine that the MGTOW slash red pill community would be like, of course she has your back. That's the easiest way for her to stab you. A waltz. A um, waltz. <laughs> All women are waltz. like that. <laughs> I will destroy you, Malcolm, when you least expect it. No, but like seriously, and it, I think that's, it's one of the most romantic things that you've ever said that like I could make your life that great. Cause when I learn about hard things that have happened to you before I met you, I just like desperately want to travel back in time and give you a hug. And at least I can help that younger person by making your life a little better now, but golly. Yeah. I would say working with you is amazing. And it's specifically amazing because we choose to make it amazing. It's our version of yes and, except it's just yes and it's awesome. Yes and we're loving yes it. Yes and every moment is awesome. And, and that's yeah. actually one final thing that I note on this is a lot of people are surprised that I start every conversation with a, hey, how's it going? It's great to be chatting with you. People will notice this on interviews with me or things and it's like a thing. And they're like, why do you do that? And because I have trained myself to always start every conversation on an emotional high note, it's much easier to maintain this emotionally positive high note throughout the entire conversation. Yeah. We have an evoked set of the ways that we respond to people. And when you ensure that evoked set is just this very easy, positive message, like, hey, how's it going? It's great to be talking today. It makes it very easy to maintain this positive emotion. And if anyone was going to take any one thing away from this, I think that's an easy thing to do. Yeah. And you know what I'm really excited for now? Dinner. Dinner. Yes. Me too. Uh, yeah. Are you gonna are you gonna serve some food for me? Uh, do we yeah, have ground beef left? To, um, Yeah, I have about 150 grams of 93% lean ground beef that I want to saute for you with some onions and butter. Yeah. Please do extra butter and yeah, saute with some onions and a jalapeno. And a jalapeno, and then steam some rice, and you'll add the spices after you get back with the kids. We'll yeah? add the tomatoes when I get back. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. Love we're on. You. I love you too. Gorgeous.